It is wonderful to be here with all of you. We have a wonderful crowd. We have visitors that are among us, and we want you to feel as you are, and that truly is our honored guest, and we say welcome. I'm thankful to be able to be here. I'm very honored to be your speaker, and I hope and pray that what we have to consider for a little while this morning would be edifying and encouraging to you from the Word of God. As an introduction, I want to say two things. Number one, I want to give you the objective of our lesson. As you can see on the screen, the title of our lesson is Serving God Without Restraint. So the objective of our lesson this morning is this. I want to do my very best to show the importance of serving God without restraint through corporate worship. What does that mean, corporate worship? What I mean by that is exactly what we're doing right now. We come together in one body in the assembly for the purpose of serving God, for the purpose of worshiping God as our brother prayed already in spirit and in truth. Please understand that as we've assembled here collectively as the body of Christ today in this assembly, understand, number one, God is the recipient of our worship. Number two, God is the spectator, not us. And number three, we are the participants. And we're here to put our all together and worship God with everything we've got in spirit and in truth. I want to talk about the importance of doing that today. Now, here is the reason for the lesson. A sister texted me about some passages found in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, and she requested that I perhaps preach on this subject based upon those passages, 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Please do not turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. I'm going to narrate a few things, but I'm going to ask you to do this. In your own time, please read 2 Chronicles chapter 6. It's an amazing prayer. And it was an amazing prayer that was prayed by a great king, and his name was King Solomon. King Solomon was one of the wisest men that ever lived. Why do I say one of the wisest men? The Bible describes him as the wisest man. Well, when you say wise man, I got to give all the votes, as my dad would say, to Jesus Christ. Jesus was second to no one. Jesus was God the Son on earth. Jesus was deity. Jesus was everything. He had the Holy Spirit without measure as he lived on this earth. Jesus gets all the votes. He had to be the wisest. So the second wisest, let's just give her to Solomon. Okay. King Solomon, when he prayed a very special prayer in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, it was a prayer of dedication for the new temple. And the Bible says this. He bows down before the altar. He lifts his hands up toward the heavens. And he prayed a prayer that was amazing out loud in the presence of all the assembly. You know, if you read that prayer, and when you do that later, read that prayer, please understand that I think Solomon understood something very important. I think Solomon understood the importance of God's people being united in corporate worship and not just on their own. I know there's a lot of folks today that think they could do it on their own. Solomon understood that God's people must be united together in corporate worship. Okay. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, a little later on, we're going to find something very interesting. We're going to find God's response to that prayer. We're going to find God's response to the prayer that Solomon made a long time ago and God's acceptance of the temple. Before God responded, notice please. Notice what happened. 
When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices. Get this. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground, to the pavement, and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. I want you to get that. When the people recognized the glory of God, they were so overwhelmed. They bowed their faces to the ground. They put their faces to the pavement, and they worshiped God without restraint. What an amazing concept. They worshiped him without restraint. You know, in like manner, I think when we hear about what God has done for us, when we hear about the grace of God and the mercy of God, we've talked about that recently, by the way, God's grace is God giving us what we don't deserve, that salvation. God's mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve, and that's to be lost. When we read in the scriptures about what God has done for us, and a very familiar passage that everybody in the world knows, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When we read passages like that and we understand that, shouldn't it cause us to want to worship and serve him for the rest of our life without restraint too? It should cause us to want to serve him without restraint. Okay, I think today when people hear the preaching of the gospel, I really believe that there's three responses. And you might be surprised at the responses, but stay with me, I promise I'm going to clarify. There are three responses to the preaching of the gospel that people have, I think, today. Here they are. Some hate, some love, and some pretend. That's the three responses to the preaching of the gospel. Some hate, some love, some pretend. Now, we all know what pretend is, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on pretend today. We get that. That's the person that's faking it, right? We get it. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time. In fact, I'm not going to spend any time on that. We already understand that. What I want to do is I want to talk about what does it mean to hate, and we'll spend a little time on that, but we're going to spend the majority of our time on what does it mean to love. And when I say love, I'm talking about love for God. These are three responses that people have in the preaching of the gospel, and it's nothing new. Let me show you what I mean by that. Going all the way back when Jesus was preparing to die on the cross, there were three responses to that preparation. One hated, one loved, and one pretended. Three responses, nothing new. Okay, in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. First of all, let me say you cannot have Christianity without the cross of Christ. It is the very focal point of everything, right? Do you remember when Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified? Remember that? You know, Paul wasn't saying, I'm never going to preach on a different subject matter than Jesus Christ and him crucified. What he was saying is, Jesus Christ and him crucified is the very epitome of redemptive truth. It's the basis for everything. Without the cross of Christ, by the way, nothing in the world matters. Nothing. 
and there is no hope. It is all based upon that. So, in Matthew chapter 26, as Jesus was preparing for that great event to die on the cross, there were three people that had three distinct roles in that preparation, three responses, three elements, three perspectives. Here they were. Number one, there was hateful rejection. Number two, there was loving worship. And number three, there was betraying hypocrisy. Okay, remember what I said, nothing new. People hear the gospel today, some hate, some love, some pretend. All right, three responses still exist today. I'm going to first talk about an example of hateful rejection. We might think, you know, we would never be guilty of that. That would be an awful thing, wouldn't it? Hateful rejection. Matthew 26 and verse 3. Then the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. When they met there, they had one thing in mind, and that's verse 4, the very next verse. Notice, verse 4 says this. They plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. Okay. One thing in mind. They got together. Caiaphas, that evil crumb that he was, got the people together for one purpose. We got to do away with Jesus Christ. And we're going to do so by trickery. By the way, the very next verse, this is verse 4. Verse 5 says they didn't want to do it right away. They, didn't want to, they wanted to wait until after the feast, and that's the feast of the Passover. So... I think there's an interesting side point here. They wanted to wait eight days. Why? Because they thought there'd be an uprising among the people if they crucified Jesus during the feast. What did God say? God says, no, it's going to happen in two days. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. Man's plan was eight days. Man's not going to win. God's plan was two days. And God always wins. And by the way, let me just also add, let me just add this. When you think about God's plans and what God does, in all the things that God does in our life, we can have all the plans that we think that we want. We can have all the plans that we think. We can think that we're going to plan our day, we're going to do all of this, but the Bible is very clear about that. We should say, wait a minute, what? When you're making your plans, say the very important words, if it be God's will. You know why? Because God will always win. Okay. Caiaphas and their plans of, a man, of man's plans was, we got to crucify Jesus. We're going to get it done in about eight days. We're going to do so by trickery. Let me talk about Caiaphas for just a moment. Caiaphas was threatened. Caiaphas was insecure. A little bit about Caiaphas' back, Caiaphas's background. The famous historian Josephus says that his real name was Joseph Caiaphas. And he described him as cunning, treacherous, wicked, and deceitful. And by the way, every time Caiaphas is described in the Bible, he has only one role, and that's getting rid of Jesus. He's either planning it or he's executing it. That was his one role that we read about in the New Testament. One scholar said, you know, he really bought his way into the position of high priest. You know why? He marries the daughter of his predecessor. He marries the daughter of Annas. Now, interestingly about Annas, there's a lot I could say about him. I'm not going to do it. I don't have time. But Annas was high priest, by the way, historians tell us, from 6 A.D. until the year 15 A.D. Okay. His successor, Caiaphas, comes on the scene, marrying his daughter. And now he's high priest from A.D. 15 
to A.D. 37. That's 22 years, and you might think, man, what's the big deal, preacher? I'll tell you. Caiaphas must have been quite the politician to be able to coexist with Rome for 22 years, and this is what I mean. Historically speaking, in the 100 years surrounding the life of Jesus Christ, okay, there were 28 high priests. Caiaphas was high priest by himself for 22 of those years. Interestingly, you might be interested to hear, the successor to Caiaphas that took on the scene as high priest after Caiaphas, you know how long he lasted? 50 days. Quite the politician, this man, Caiaphas, was. Buying his way in, marrying the daughter of Annas, and now he's got more power than anyone else, and he wants to get rid of Jesus. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you, this is hateful rejection. Let me give you an example, though. Do you remember when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? An amazing story when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Okay? Now, I'm going to say this. Caiaphas knew and believed that Jesus actually raised him from the dead. He believed that. Now, it's one thing for somebody to reject something because you don't have the evidence. We can understand that. In other words, somebody rejects an idea or rejects a notion because they don't have evidence or they don't have enough evidence. We can understand that at least, right? We can also understand that somebody might reject something because they have the evidence, but they don't believe it. Now, by the way, the Bible is evidence. The Bible is factual evidence. And whether you and I believe it or not is irrelevant to whether it's true or not. It is true. But at least we can understand in our mind if somebody rejects it because they don't believe it. It's wrong, but we can understand. It's still another thing, though, to have the evidence in full view. To believe the evidence completely and still reject it. That is what Caiaphas did. That is hateful rejection. And that is willful ignorance. Do you remember what Caiaphas said then too? We got to do away with Jesus. He's going to bring in this Jesus movement. And he's going to get in the way. We got to do something about it. You remember what he said? I love this because he had no idea what he was saying. He had no clue. But again, God's winning here. Remember what Caiaphas said? It's better that one man dies and a nation be spared. What he thought was, this is what he thought he was saying. It's better that we get rid of Jesus and the nation of Israel be spared and our former sense of values and our former sense of lifestyle and religion is intact. We just got to get rid of Jesus. That's what he thought he was saying. But being high priest that year, he didn't realize what he really was saying prophetically and what God wanted him to say. It's better that one man dies on the cross, please get this, and the rest of us can be spared. He had no idea what he was saying. Again, God wins. Caiaphas, it's hateful rejection. All right, we get that. But the question is this. How does one hate the Lord today? I mean, nobody's going to say, I hate Jesus. Nobody says that, right? How is one going to hate the Lord today? Here it is. Deny him. Ignore him. And reject him. If you deny him, ignore him, and reject him, you hate him. How do you deny him, 
How do you ignore him? How do you reject him? Very simple. You deny him when you deny his word. You ignore him when you ignore his teachings. You reject him when you reject his commandments. Those are the epitome of things that the Bible describes as hate. How do I know that? I'm going to go back and quote the the greatest one ever. I'm going to name drop here. I'm going to call out Jesus. What did Jesus say about this? So I didn't just come up with this. Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. He also said this, if you love me, keep my words. And if you keep my commandments, you will what? You will abide in my love as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So if we say that we love Jesus, let's not deny him. Let's not ignore him. Let's not reject him. Okay, enough of that. Let's talk about a better response to Jesus Christ and the cross. And that is this, because Caiaphas was all about hateful rejection, but here's another one. It's about loving worship. Please get this. It is about loving worship. We go to Matthew 26, beginning in verse 6 there. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Now let's back up just a little bit. We're now going back to Saturday before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which I do believe, you've heard me preach on this, not going into this today, but I do believe that was on Sunday. And on Saturday at the house of Simon the leper, Jesus was over at the house of some dear friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Remember that? His dear friends. And by the way, that's the same Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead that I just mentioned a moment ago. Okay? So, Jesus is over there, and Simon the leper invites him over to his house. Interesting about Simon the leper. Simon the leper was a man that had leprosy, but obviously, Simon the leper did not have leprosy at the time of this gathering. You know why? Because nobody would have been there. Nobody would have gone to Simon the leper's house at this time, if he, if he currently had leprosy. I think he's called Simon the leper for another reason too. I think it's to emphasize that that was the man that was described as the leper and Jesus healed him. I think that's important too. Okay. So they're invited over to Simon the leper's house on this Saturday for this great event. We also find Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are also invited and also the 12 apostles. Furthermore, in Matthew 26 and verse 7, notice, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. Now, please follow this closely. An alabaster flask. It was very thin. It was very costly what was inside of it. I am told, by the way, it was fat at the bottom and round. And it came up to a narrowing at the top. And in the top, they had a cork. They didn't have, by the way, they didn't have caps like we have on perfumes today. They had a cork, and they would cork it inside there. But inside this particular alabaster flask, which, by the way, the King James calls it an alabaster box. You know, the best English word that's translated for that word in the original is an alabaster vessel. And inside this vessel of glass, alabaster, I guess you would say, very thin, very costly, fragrant oil was placed inside. It was very rare. Now, 
Inside was precious perfume. How precious? Mark's account tells us how precious it was. Mark's account says it cost 300 denarii, which is a year's wages. Remember, we've said this recently. One denarius was one day's wages. 300 denarii would be about a year's wages. That's how much it cost. Notice what she does. This is amazing, by the way. And, you know, really, this is very important. Um, first of all, why did they have it? Somebody might ask. Well, first of all, number one, to have such a costly thing, obviously the family was wealthy. That's number one, true. But number two, it was very customary and common to have it. Do you know why? Because guess what? They didn't have deodorant back then. Right garden speed stick were a long way off. Okay? You know what happens when you walk around in the desert? It gets hot. We don't, they didn't have showers like we have readily available. They didn't have deodorants like we have readily available. So you know what people would do? They'd walk around, they'd get hot, they'd sweat, and guess what? They'd stink. Somebody would have a get-together. A host would invite people over, and guess what they would do? They would have this fragrant oil for the purpose of disguising the smell. It was a common courtesy of, of a common gesture of um, kindness. And by the way, it was for the people, not only the person that stunk, but it was also kind for the other people that had to smell the person that stunk. Okay, so it was very common to have this perfume. I want you to notice what happens, though, what this woman does. In Matthew 26 and verse 7, in our passage here, a woman, Matthew doesn't tell us who it is, but Mark does. I'm sorry, John does. John chapter 12 and verse 3. We find it is Mary, the sister of Martha. And that was a dear friend of Jesus. And for some reason, she's given the task of going around and anointing the guest. What she's supposed to do is this. Take a little bit of the oil and go to Jesus first, then the next one, then the next one, and then the next one. It was customary. It was common to do that. You know what she does? She gets to Jesus. She comes to Jesus, and she can't contain herself. She can't go any further. She doesn't go any further than Jesus. She doesn't care about the other guests that were there. She understands something very important is about to happen, that he's heading toward his death. She has to prepare him for that. She knows that it's her redemption. And when she starts, she can't go any further. John's account says she shatters the whole bottle. Interestingly, in Matthew's account, it says this. She took this costly fragrant oil and she puts it on his head. Another gospel writer says she took it and she put it on his feet. When you put it all together, you know what she did? She put it on his whole body. Unrestrained devotion. She understood what he was about to do and the significance of it. He was to die for the sins of the world, including and especially her own sins, and she knew that, and she had to prepare him for that, and she didn't care about anything else. She worshiped him without restraint. Without restraint. Why? What made her do that? It was an act of love. It was an act of honor. It was an act of unrestrained worship. She was completely controlled by service. 
So much so that she couldn't deal with the restraint. I'm going to ask you a very personal question. I'm going to ask you a question from the bottom of my heart. Do you serve God like that? By the way, I'm asking myself that too. Do you serve God with unrestrained devotion? Or do you hold back? Is it okay to serve God when it's on your terms, when you work him into your busy schedule? Or is he truly number one in your life? Do you serve him but with restraint? Do you serve him with your all? Are you content with just giving him the bare minimum, working him into your schedule? If that's the case, you're serving him with restraint. I'm going to say something else too. Okay. If you are a Sunday morning Christian only, okay, please don't tune me out. If you are a Sunday morning attendee only, and it's because of extenuating circumstances beyond your control, maybe, for example, health issues keep you from doing more. Maybe it's because of age issues keep you from doing more. Maybe it's other truly extenuating circumstances that are beyond your control. And by the way, only you and God know if it's beyond your control. That's just, that's just, I'll leave it there. Okay? But if that's the case, that's one thing, and maybe you're doing everything you can. But if you are a Sunday morning Christian only, a Sunday morning attendee only, and that's your life, and the reason for that is because that's what you think is all that's required of you, and you're content with doing the bare minimum requirement, you are serving God with restraint. And folks, doesn't he deserve more than that when he gave us everything he had in his best? I want to say something about God's blessings, okay? Everybody wants God's blessings. If I were to ask you, do you want God's blessings, you would say, yes, give it to me in abundance. Yes, you would, and so would I. Nobody's going to say, no, not me, just give me a little bit. Everybody says, no, I want God's blessings in abundance. Everybody does because we all want that. That's number one. Number two, I don't believe that God blesses us as payment for serving him. I don't believe that either. But I do believe that God does bless those that put him first. And Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 6. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If God's number one, Jesus says, don't worry, God's going to take care of you. He's going to bless you and take care of you. Okay. Just a little observation, and I'm done with this part of the lesson. Just an observation. Don't expect God's blessings in abundance when you're content with serving him with restraint. He's got to be everything you got. He's got to be more than that. Mary poured out her love of compassion with unrestrained devotion. She was honoring the one that was to die and rise again for her salvation and bear her sins. I want you to notice something, the response of others to her devotion. Do you know that some of the Lord's own disciples got mad at her? You know what they said? It is a waste. 
Wow. Somebody does something in great extreme devotion for the Lord, and some of the other disciples, followers of Jesus, they said, it's a waste, and they got mad at her. Notice what happened. In Matthew 26, beginning verse 8, But when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, What purpose is this waste? This fragrant oil might be sold for much and given to the poor. Let me back up, make one little point here, okay, about criticism. Have you ever been criticized? Have you ever been criticized for being a Christian? I'm going to tell you this. If you live your life with unrestrained devotion to putting God first in your life, Somebody that you know, whether it's in the workplace or whatever, somebody that you know is going to make fun of that. And they're going to criticize you for that. I had one friend of mine say one time, I think you're taking this thing too far. People are going to criticize you for that. So we get that and we understand that. And we all say, and I'm going to say, if somebody criticizes you like that, so what? But doesn't it hurt especially more when the one criticizing is a Christian too? That's painful. And sometimes when fellow Christians criticize you for your service, just remember this. Chances are they're criticizing you because your devotion indicts them for what they're not doing. And they may criticize you for your enthusiasm. Don't let it curb your enthusiasm now. Don't let it stop you. Just keep on going and realize what it is. But when you do something great, and when you do something to put the Lord first in your life, somebody is going to criticize you. That's just the way that it is. And they called it a waste. They said it could have been given to the poor. Let me say something about the poor. It is very important to feed the needs of others and feed the needs of the poor. Yes, it is. But what she understood is she understood it wasn't time to feed the poor. It was a time to worship the Lord. Worship is the single most important thing in our life. Serving God through worship. I'm going to get back to feeding the poor and taking care of the needs of others in just a moment. But let me just notice in John chapter 12 and verse 6. Then he said not that he cared for the poor, but that because he was a thief and the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. In other words, the one that came up with this idea or this objection was Judas. He didn't really care about the money to give to the poor. What he cared about was this. Let's sell the perfume. Give me the 300 denarii. Let me stick it in the bag and put it in my robe. He had already been deciding to betray Jesus. That is betraying hypocrisy. That's a fake. So he really wasn't trying to feed the poor. He just wanted the money. Okay, that's, by the way, I'm done with the pretender. That's it. I told you that would be a small part of our lesson. That's it. He pretended. So remember the three responses. Some hate, that was Caiaphas. Some love, that was Mary. And some pretend that's Judas. But let me notice the Lord's response. Matthew 26 and verse 10. When Jesus was aware of it, he said unto them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. She's done excellently. She gave all she had. Do you know what she did? She did the same thing that Jesus described with that widow woman that we just talked about last time that gave two mites. Jesus said in all the money that was given, she gave more than all combined. Why? She gave out of her necessity. They gave out of their abundance. She gave all that she had for God. And by the way, it's not the amount. Because you remember how much in monetary measure two mites were? One quarter of a penny. 
But Jesus said she gave all she had, and it was way more important. That's what this woman did. That's what Mary did. She gave all she had in her service to the Lord. Jesus said this, though, about the poor in Matthew 26 and 11. You have the poor with you always, but with me you do not have always. Now, it is important to take care of the needs of the poor. In Deuteronomy 15 and 11, and Jesus is actually borrowing this passage as he's made that statement. In Deuteronomy 15 and 11, he said, For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and your needy in your land. Okay. So helping the needs of others is important, but please understand the ultimate priority of life is worship. And nothing should stand in that way. That's got to be number one in our life. Okay. Supreme act of a Christian. Then in verse 12 of Matthew 26, this is what Jesus says more that she was doing in this. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Then in verse 13, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached to the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. In other words, when anybody reads this, they will know that her act was a memorial or an act of loving worship, and she served the Lord without restraint. Okay. Do you remember in our introduction when I said that the objective of the lesson is to show the importance of corporate worship and not just on our own. Okay, and we go to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. This is God's response, by the way, to the prayer that Solomon prayed. And it's 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and it's verses 12 and verse 15. Here it is. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. And I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer made in this place. Did you get that, please? wish it was on the screen. This place. There was a time when this place mattered. There was a time when the temple itself and the structure of the temple in the Old Testament mattered and was significant. God said, I've heard their prayer. I will hear their prayer in this place. But folks, did you know this? That this building that we're in right now is not significant. The building is not significant anymore. I got to say something about our building. We have a beautiful little building. We really do. And we are thankful and blessed that we have it. We've got a nice place to come together and worship. Is it scriptural to use the church treasury for the building? Yes. Do you know why? Because it's not a necessity. It's an expedient. It expedites the process. God has commanded us to worship. The building expedites the process of worship. But do you know this? We don't need the building to worship because all that matters is not the structure anymore. It's the assembly. And we can assemble in this place. We can assemble outside. We can assemble in a barn somewhere. It doesn't matter. So yes, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 with the temple and the Old Testament, God said, what is significant is this place, but not anymore. And I want to make one more point, please, about the treasury and how the Lord's money is used with regards to things like this. I've heard for all my life, we need to keep a large balance in the treasury 
in case something emergency hits like the parking lot goes out. Folks, do you realize we jackhammer that park, parking lot out and park on the dirt and still worship God? Do you realize that? We don't need that. It's not a necessity. It's a blessing. Is it wrong to have a nice parking lot? No. But let's not put so much emotional emphasis on buildings and parking lots at the expense of preaching the gospel. Amen? That's what matters. Foremost. First and foremost. Right? The assembly. What matters in the New Testament? What matters in the New Testament, as Chris prayed... It's to worship him in spirit and in truth as we've come together in the assembly. In John chapter 4, Jesus is having a conversation with the woman at the well. And beginning in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Okay. Here's the response of Jesus. John 4 verses 21, 23, and 24. Here it is. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. One scholar said, A spiritual being like God can only be pleased with worship when it comes from the heart. When it comes from the right place. When it comes from the right spirit. When it comes from the right motive. And when it's according to revealed truth. According to the scriptures. Let me close with this. As we've said several times, there's three ways to respond to the cross of Christ. We know that. Some hate, some love, some pretend. We all know about the pretender. The pretender in our story was Judas, and that's the hypocrite. That's the pretender. But hate is rejection. So let's get specific. Rejection of what? Hate is rejection of the gospel. The good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The New Testament pattern whereby we must be saved. When the gospel is preached and people hear the evidence of the gospel. Now, by the way, I understand sometimes people delay. That's not what I'm talking about. Because sometimes delaying your response is because you're counting the cost. And Jesus said that was a good thing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about ultimate rejection of the gospel. You've heard the evidence. No, I'm done. That's hate. That's hate. What is love? Love is obedience. And love is obedience demonstrated by loving worship. And it begins with obeying the gospel. What's the first thing you must obey? You must obey the gospel. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, Paul said, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, that you have to make a choice when you hear the word of God. And today you've heard the word of God. And you've got to make a choice. Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He that does not believe will be condemned. 
What does belief mean? Belief means having the force to obey. In other words, I read about what Jesus has done for me, and I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, not just the concept of it, but I believe it so strongly, I'm willing to do whatever he wants me to do. I'm going to obey him. What else did Jesus say you have to do to be saved? Jesus said you got to repent. What's that mean? Fancy word. It just means i got to change. What's wrong with change? We change all the time. Well, how about change for good? Repentance means this. I'm, I've been going in this direction, but I'm no longer going to do that. I'm going to change my life, and I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I tell you no, but except you repent, you will all likewise perish. He further said, if you'll confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father, which is in heaven. What's the confession? Here it is. Acts chapter 8. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If you hear, believe, repent, confess, those are prerequisites to going to the point of salvation, but you're not saved yet. You haven't obeyed the gospel yet. A person obeys the gospel when they go down to the waters of baptism and have their sins washed away. Jesus said, he that believes and is baptized will be saved. 1 Peter 3.21, the like figure where to even baptism does also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how you obey the gospel. That's how you respond to the preaching of the cross. That, my friends, is what you have to do to be saved. Let me ask you a question. Are you saved today? If not, you could take those steps. We would love to assist you in that. You could be saved today. Maybe you've taken those steps of obedience, but maybe there are things in your life that aren't right. Maybe there are things that you need to correct. That be the case. Come repenting of those things. Confess those things. We'll pray with you and for you, and God will forgive and restore. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.